This is Podcast Q with Matt Henney. That is me, and I'm just a short drive from Virgil's Gola Kitchen and Bar. I'm hoping for some of their fried shrimp and salmon balls for a late lunch. <laughs> Since I'm recording this interview virtually, that idea might not work out for me. G Smalls, welcome to the show. Are you going to be my food connect for today? <laughs> you should have told me ahead of time. <laughs> How you doing, man? I'm good. I'm good. G is a husband, father, author, entrepreneur, relationship coach, activist, and co-owner of Virgil's, the restaurant I just mentioned. It's a Gola Geechee-inspired restaurant in College Park. Thanks for joining me today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So we are four or five months into the coronavirus pandemic. So I've got to ask, how are you and your family doing? How are you navigating the craziness that is the world today? Yeah, I always tell people we didn't really, we didn't, haven't got really to experience the whole lockdown situation because we never closed. Um, The restaurant went to takeout, but our staff got reduced by, you know, 95%. So that meant we were actually working a little harder and, and at the restaurant a lot longer than typical, than typical. So we were so being busy, um, obviously making the adjustments with, you know, the new normal of having to mask and sanitize and, you know, the media craze and all of those different things. But as far as our day to day, it almost like, you know, kind of, kind of stayed, uh, stayed the same. How's it been just personally for you and for Juan and your son? I think it's been good overall. Um, I think it really, just like everybody else, it really gives you the opportunity to sit still. Um, you know, there's nothing going on in the city. There's no events going on. There's no place you really have to be. Everybody's at home. Um, and so to be able to just kind of just spend that time at home when you do have that free time and just be able to have a clear mind um, without, I guess I should say, after the the worry of, you know, what's going to happen now and the worry of the unknown. Once you get past that, I think it was very helpful for us to just be able to be at home. Nice. Yeah. Well, and so you and Juan opened Virgil's in June 2020. So that's been it's about 13 months now. Yep. And, and you said you, it's named after your father. And, and like I mentioned, honors the Gullah Geechee culture of Georgia and South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Restaurants are one of the hardest small businesses to make successful. So what, what prompted you guys to do it? You know, uh, <laughs> never had any intentions of opening up a restaurant. Um, what our intentions was always to do was to open up a bar and lounge for the black men in the LGBTQ community, you know, because we didn't really have a space that was owned by us and a place that just is fully loved and affirmed. And so our goal, you know, through doing events over the years, doing the gentleman's ball and promoting different things was to have that one space that we could, you know, get together and, and fellowship and drink and have a good time. And so when we actually, we knew we were going to serve food wherever it was, but it wasn't ever going to be about the food. We thought about Maybe we'll serve some wings and fries, you know, some little pizza, something. But when we found the space in College Park, we thinking about the menu and it just made sense. And, you know, we just like, why not just cook what I love to cook and serve it, which is Gullah Geechee Cuisine, because that's where I'm from. That's where I was raised. Uh, and so started developing the menu and it quickly turned into a full-fledged restaurant, you know, full-fledged restaurant for the, for the, the whole, the, the entire community. It celebrates black culture. It celebrates the surf black culture in America. But, you know, it's a space that um, love and affirms, you know, not only black people, but everybody. Uh, so I, I was very thankful for the vision because not only do we have a space that's 
owned by fame, gender, lover, black men like my husband and I, where people that look like us and, and, and move like us can come to a space where they do feel like it's owned by us, but also everybody can come in and feel welcome and uh, share in that space as well. So, um, and the food has been, it's been crazy to me that, you know, people actually buying my food, you know, and writing reviews about it and talking about it. So um, it's been a, a, a huge blessing, um, a surprise in our life. Um, but, you know, it comes along with the challenges as well. But uh, overall, I mean, it, it's been good. So, you know, to answer your question, I, there was no plans for us to do this, but now it's like, you know, our divine order moved us here. Did uh, the recipes come from, the, were they family recipes, ones you had on hand or? In our household, in our culture, I mean, there is no real recipes. I didn't, I didn't have a book or something I could go run to to get these recipes. It's just how I cook. Um, it's how I've been cooking and how, how I've been taught to cook by my family. Um, and so, you know, I had all the recipes in my head, but of course, in opening a restaurant, that was actually a huge challenge for me to actually put the recipe on paper and, and in bulk and to serve, you know, tons of people every day. So that was a huge challenge to do, but all of the recipes pretty much was kind of formulated in my head and, and I put it on paper. You're a very hands-on guy, too. Did you, you were talking about putting the recipes down on paper. Did you find it hard to trust other people to make those recipes the way you wanted them to make them? Absolutely. So initially, I had never intended on cooking and being in the kitchen. My, uh, I had hired a, a head chef when we first opened, and my intentions were always to you know train the chef on how to cook the food, and he'd take it from there. Uh, quickly found out that that didn't <laughs> that didn't happen. Um, it, it was a challenge in getting the food cooked the way I, I wanted to be cooked. Um, but a part of that was not just you know no shade or anything to the chef, but it was me learning how to cook in that environment um, and cook those recipes to cook for a lot of people. So I had to learn it. Um, I now I'm I'm kind of stuck in there. I have been stuck in there as far as you know leading the kitchen. Um, but that was never my intentions to do so. But, you know, I love it and I hate it. Um, it's necessary. You know, I know the ins and outs of the restaurant, of the kitchen, uh, so I can, you know, I can properly train other people. But, you know, hopefully, eventually, I will get back to a space where I will hire head chefs just to, to lead the kitchen and um, I can be less hands-on in that way, at least. So thinking before March, before the pandemic hit how was the restaurant doing i know just from things i've heard and 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 seeing social media that you definitely you know, have definitely developed that sort of bar and nightlife scene after hours uh, at the restaurant yeah. but how's it doing overall how was it doing overall prior to i mean it was it was doing great um every every month we were beating last month's numbers um so i mean it was fantastic i mean we couldn't have asked for you know better business um, better uh, feedback and, you know, reception from the community. You know, everybody enjoyed it. So uh, it was going great. <laughs> the pandemic hit. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, and then the pandemic. But you guys yeah. pivoted pretty quickly to doing takeout. Uh, and then we were talking before the show that, that you opened again for in-person dining and then just a few weeks ago closed again for that. So what's what's it been like uh, during the pandemic and now that it's late July? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, in the beginning, it, for probably the first two to three weeks, it was horrible um, in doing takeout. We wasn't, 
really, you know, nobody was calling for takeout orders. And takeout was never a large part of our business. A large, our business was dine-in. Uh, we had only just started Uber Eats maybe two weeks before. We would only run it during the day because we were too busy at night to take takeout. We never took takeout orders over the phone. It was, you always had to walk in to do a takeout order. So that was not our, that was not our jam. You know what I'm saying? We were dine-in. So that first two to three weeks, in combination with us not really being a takeout place initially. And, you know, in the beginning, everybody wanted to cook at home. You know, everybody was grocery shopping. They bought all these groceries. You know, it was all about eating at home. So slowly but surely, you know, we ramped up on Uber Eats. We started doing more advertising takeout. People got tired of cooking at home. Uh, and it just picked up uh, over the time and since then. And when the restrictions, I believe, got lifted... Um, by government camp, I think maybe three to four weeks later or two to three weeks later, I'm not sure. We didn't do it immediately, but we opened up half the dining room and half the bar. Um, and we had been doing that for the past couple of months, I guess, until most recently as the numbers went up again uh, and, you know, Keisha's kind of put things back on restriction. Um, we just, <laughs> we, although we didn't have to, because uh, a lot of people didn't, um, we just thought it would be safer just to kind of dial things back. And, you know, to be quite honest with you, it, it has been a challenge getting employees to come back to work. Um, you know, not only are they, I mean, they're getting great unemployment. They're also, some of them are still not ready and prepared to come back in the, in the, during the pandemic. So that was a challenge. So it was an opportunity to say, hey, let's, why not just be safe on the safe side? Takeout only was doing really well for us um, to protect our guests and to be able to, you know, get more stability in the staff. Let's just, let's just dial it back a bit and, and go back to takeout. So we've been doing takeout only. And that, has that been going okay? Yeah, no, it's, it's been doing great. Um, you know, it's actually a lot less stressful, obviously, because we're not dealing with, you know, as many people as far as guests and employees. So it can, it can be a lot less stressful in that way, less people to manage. Um, and, you know, people are so, you know, supporting us very well. So I'm not complaining about it at all. We'll just take baby steps and see how the virus goes and ramp back up uh, to going back to full fledged. Well, and so here we are late July. You also just released your memoir, Black Enough, Man Enough, which unpacks the joys and traumas of living at the intersections of being black, raised by a white mother and a bisexual man. That's sort of how it's described in press Mm -hmm. materials. So congratulations on that. Thank you. What uh, what inspired you to to write the book? (laughs) And this has been another thing that was not planned. Um, I never intended on writing a a book either. Uh, But what what originally happened and what has grew through my memoir is maybe five, about five years ago when Juan and I was doing Love Works with Juan and G Real Heavy, which is our love and relationships talk show, uh, we were going to write a book together. And it was basically going to be about our journey together and things we've learned to help share community with lessons and relationships. Uh, and so in starting that, um, we, he was to start writing about his story prior to meeting me. And I was going to write about my story prior to meeting him. Very short, give you a quick summary of my years. And then we meet one and then we have these lessons. So I started writing, um, about my life <laughs> and actually one wasn't really quite ready to start writing. And so 
it just really turned and grew into this 375 page memoir, uh, 40 years of my life, um, that I realized that I really had a, uh, um, I always knew that some of the things I went through, a lot of us went through, and I know that sharing them could be uh, very helpful to those in the community, but after writing the book, I don't think you really realize how many things you get over and how many trials and tribulations you've been through until you actually start thinking about it and writing them down, you know, things you forget about. And once you start that story, you start remembering all of these things and all of these wounds start getting healed. And it's been a, uh, a great 45, four to five years is how long it took me to write it and release it. But um, that's how it happened. That's how I ended up writing this memoir. Now I think it's really the most impactful thing I have ever done. You know, it's the most vulnerable thing I have ever done because I really dig deep in there and I tell a lot of truths, a lot of things that norm, you know, the average person probably wouldn't share with anybody who cares to pick up the book. It's definitely the most impactful thing that I've I've done. You mentioned the page count. It's 28 chapters, 360 some odd pages. And I mean, you really don't pull any punches in there. You get into racism, homophobia, masculinity, marriage, fatherhood. Uh, how was it to sort of dig through those and, and talk about those? I mean, those are some pretty hefty, yeah. hefty things, <laughs> hefty ideas to talk about. Yeah, I mean, and it was it, it was tough. Um, and obviously, I talked about those things because those are things that have impacted my life personally. Uh, and so in telling my story, it's, it's not essay style at all. It really is a story. It could be nonfiction. It could be fiction or nonfiction. It really tells tell a story. Um, and so to, to have to do that and to dig into those emotions again and to remember those stories and even have to address a lot of things with people that are in the book, it was tough. But obviously, you know, with growth, it's never it's never easy. Um, but I, so I, I appreciate having to go through that journey, but it was definitely very challenging for me to do it and very eye opening, uh, as well. Just learning so much about myself, finding out patterns, uh, that I've had since I was a child and telling my stories. And by the time I'm getting to age 30 in my writing, I'm like, shit, I've been doing this since I've been seven. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it's, uh, it's, I always recommend whether you release it or not. Like I, I recommend everybody write a book about themselves, you know, about their life. Right. I'm not sure that I want to look back in my pattern. <laughs> maybe that would be maybe that would be instructive. I'm not sure. <laughs> so uh, your social media, you often include your husband Juan. Your son's in there. I think he's uh, uh, now in Atlanta and and just getting started on his career. How uh, how important is is family to you and and to uh, you know that support for all these things that you're working on? Yeah, no, it's, it's extremely important and in me telling my story i'm telling their story you know i'm telling one and i's story and which is a part of his life and part of him you know his story being shared and my son and and uh that story being shared and what me and his mom went through because you know i was married to his mom before being married to one so it talks about that journey of you know meeting her since ninth grade and uh what our relationship was like and how we got married and how i at one point i was trying to discover i mean you know I mean, having challenges with my sexuality and being attracted to men as well and, and how I, you know, had cheated on her with men, you know, through that time. And so, you know, it's extremely, it was extremely important for my son, uh, my husband, uh, as well as my mother. She's a large part of the book as well to support me because I was, I was telling all of their stories. Right. Yeah. And how, and how were they with that, with, with Juan and your mother and, 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 uh, so, 
the easiest person was my son. Um, he was definitely the the he didn't present much challenges, if you will. Um, you know, he read the book and didn't have any problems with anything that I wrote or didn't have to question me about anything. Um, now, I will say that I I've learned about some ways in which he felt uh, through situations that we went through and throughout the years. And so we were able to talk about those things. Um, Juan was very, also very supportive. Um, it was not always easy for him to read certain parts of the book and, and wait in ways in which I thought about things that we went through. Uh, but he was so very, you know, supportive. Uh, my mom had the biggest challenge. Uh, <laughs> she definitely had the biggest challenge because I mean, she's the one who has impacted me the most in life, you know, her and my father. It was very rough for her uh, to have um, uh, to be married and have kids with a black man uh, back in the 70s, early 80s and having a family to just own her and for it. Um, and, you know, that was very tough on her. So she was trying to raise kids. And, you know, with that, you know, there's a lot of trauma that comes along with with that. Um, so I had to heal from a lot of a lot of wounds that um, I got over the years. And some of those were because of our relationship uh, and so forth, to have to revisit that stuff and for me to have to tell her story, you know, um, that was challenging for her. And so, you know, we negotiated some things in the book, uh, if you will, and took some things out. took some things she wasn't completely comfortable with and I respected that. I wanted everybody to have that opportunity, um, but at the same time still be able to tell my story effectively. Well, and the launch of the book um, came with Black Enough, Man Enough Live. It's a weekly show on Tuesdays. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so it's a limited series, um, and it's it's going to be a four- to five-part series. And so every week I'm touching on different themes in the book and talking with uh, different characters in the book. So last week um, I talked about what it was like to – uh, be a mixed race black man and had to and be raised by a white woman. Um, and I also had my mom on so she can talk about the experience of what it was like as a white woman to be raising a black family. Uh, and so it talked about that. Uh, this week, um, I'm going to be talking with heterosexual, it's going to be a panel of heterosexual and non-heterosexual black men in the community. Um, so we can talk about you know, how to bridge some of the gaps between the two groups, uh, some of the issue that the issues that uh, that we have amongst us. So we can just kind of have an open dialogue about that, which is something that doesn't happen very often. And so um, the week after that, I'll be talking to my son and we'll be talking about fatherhood and what it was like for him to read about himself in the book. And uh, we're going to finish it off with Juan and I and um, actually talk with our uh, therapist that we've had over the past 10 years uh, and just kind of talk about our journey and um, what it was like just to, to, to be in relation to each other and what our growth was like. And is that something people can, so if they hear this interview with, with the two of us after the series is concluded, can that, is there a way to go back and see them? They're going to be posted. Yeah, yeah so there, it's actually on the one and G YouTube page. Um, and they can also go to my Facebook page to find it there too, but yeah, it'll live on forever. Okay. Yeah. So, so uh, I follow your social media. Recently, you put out a call for a personal assistant, something you've you've advertised before. So, I wanted to ask you, what's it like to be the personal assistant of G Smalls? <laughs> it's the hardest, probably the hardest job in the world because I don't really know how to have one. You know, I've had maybe four. They don't. It does, it's they're always very short lived, but. Um, <laughs> 
it's, it, it, I don't really know how to have one. You know, I'm so uh, hands-on. Um, I, I'm sure the, the young lady, Kanisha, who's my sister now, she, she has the challenges with me, of course, I'm sure. <laughs> but at the, at the same time, um, I think it's fun. You know, I'm a fun guy. Uh, you get exposed to a lot because I do have my hands in so many different things. Um, I really needed a personal assistant to, to help me with this uh, book campaign um, and a lot of scheduling, you know, because I am doing a lot at Virgil. Uh, so that was the primary reason for me bringing on a, a personal assistant at this time. But I, I think it's, uh, it's, it's an opportunity to learn a lot, to get exposed to a lot, um, but it can probably be a little challenging as well because I'm so micromanaging maybe and uh, I'm very direct. I don't have a lot of time to sugarcoat things at all. So <laughs> I don't know if I would want to work for me. <laughs> oh, interesting. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about the Gentleman's Foundation. You co-founded that with Juan. And you started the Gentleman's Ball in 2012. I remember the first one I went to was in 2013 and was, was impressed. It was actually 2011. It was 11, 11, was 11 was our very first Gentleman's Ball. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, the, the first one that I went to was, uh, was was impressed to see such a large Midtown Art Gallery filled with gay men of color and celebrated in a way that you know I just hadn't seen before from other organizations. What, uh, what prompted you and Juan to, to start the organization and, and, and launch that ball? Again, something that was never planned. Uh, we were doing events. So I've always been passionate about events. And so back in 2010, 2010 started an event production company. Um, and we were doing private events for, for uh, anybody who would hire us. Um, and we also started doing very limited promotions for the black men in the community, um, doing just kind of bar meetups and networking type of events. Um, and then I had this idea that I want to, I, because I was going to, as I started getting more and more involved in the community, the LGBT community as a whole, I started going to all of these black tie galas that were hosted by the white men in the community. And they were predominantly white events. Um, and I, and they were just, you know, how many fucking black tie galas they are, uh, you know, right. every year, which is a thing. I'm like, oh no, why don't. You know, why don't we have this in our community? Why don't we have the opportunity for us to do this as well? So I, I wanted to do, I had the idea to do a second chance prom. That's what I wanted to do. Let's have, you know, Juan and I had just gotten married. I was, you know, we were like two years in, you know, things were fresh, you know, very proud. I had, you know, been through a marriage with a woman where it was just a very tumultuous situation for me at times. Uh, and then I had just gotten to this place where, you know, I was finally proud of my sexuality. And so it was also an opportunity to uh, have that second chance of going to the prom, uh, you know, with my man, you know, and giving that opportunity to other brothers in, 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 the, uh, in the community and, you know, raising funds as well for a nonprofit organization and at the time. That first one we was donating to Corporate Code, uh, which was for the homeless at the time. So that's where the idea started, to do a second chance prom. And we decided we're going to call it the Gentleman's Ball. What would we call it? The Gentleman's Ball. The Gentleman's Ball. What was going to be the tagline? Uh, it was about standing tall in your truth. 
you know, because there was a stereotype that, you know, a lot of black men were ashamed of their sexuality. Uh, so they were living on the DL. Uh, and that was me at one time. It was a lot of us at one time. Or that we were, uh, you know, just all these different stereotypes. So it was, it was an opportunity for us to show up and say, hey, this is who we are. We're proud of who we are. We don't fit any of your stereotypes. We're true gentlemen. <laughs> and so that's where it started. By the third year, I mean, by the second year, Juan decided, let's let's give away an award to one guy who did great all year. And so we did that, and it turned into the honors program since then. And now we, we're giving out to 12 awards away you know, to six women in the community as well as six men in the community. Um, but by the third year, we wanted to do a, a mentoring program and just kind of do a little more in the community. Uh, and so we formed the Gentleman Foundation uh, applied for the 501c3 license and we've done a mentoring program since then uh, we've done different mental health initiatives group programs um, we give away scholarships which have which has been our most successful program um, and, and have given different grants away in the in the community as well so you know that's that's how the gentleman's gentleman's foundation had had come to be um, and so now we're uh what is it the 2020, so we're almost going into our 10th year since the, the Gentleman's Ball, and almost our sixth, seventh year of the Gentleman's Foundation. Um, but yeah, it's just grown since then. Um, but we have taken, for the past year, one to two years, we've kind of taken a step back from the Gentleman's Foundation as we focused on getting Virgil's up and running, because it's just as anybody in the nonprofit world knows, it's very challenging to run a nonprofit you know, with no money, uh, for one. Um, and, and you have to be a 100% dedicated to really make something like that, that happen. And I feel like, you know, we need to shift things a bit, uh, and, and start in our more entrepreneur, uh, ventures so we can have a stronger foundation for the foundation. So hopefully, God willing, you know, next year for our 10th anniversary, we'll be coming back with the bang. Okay. And next year, 2021 next year or 2021 next year, uh, will be our 10th anniversary of the gentleman's ball. Uh, and so we were going to come back this year, but of course it didn't make sense because of the whole coronavirus. So we said, why not just wait till the 10th year? So, so your social activism, activism seems endless. In 2018, you helped organize a, a black bar and restaurant crawl to highlight LGBTQ-owned spaces in the wake of outrage over racist social media posts from the owners of uh, the former Burkharts. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's also your work with the Gentleman's Ball and the Gentleman's Foundation. What, uh, how have you taken part or have you taken part in the ongoing social justice protests and rallies that have been going on in Atlanta? So I will say I don't, I don't, I don't love to call myself an activist. <laughs> it seems like a lot of pressure. Uh, but I do, I, I do what is, is put in me. You know what I'm saying? Um, I, if I feel something, if I feel the need to, to move on an issue that's happening, then I do. Um, I don't put myself in a, in a, I guess, a, a, a space of an activist because that means that's something that I'm, you know, I don't know. I just don't like being that you're labeled with that. But with that, like I said, I do use my voice. Um, I think we all have one. Um, and I, I've been fortunate to do different things in the community that I think um, 
comes with some respect. Uh, and so I take that as a responsibility. Um, and I speak out when I need to. Um, and so, of course, through the whole Black Lives Matter movement um, that's been going on. I mean, this has been, I think it's been a uh, such a historical time in history right now. And to be a part of that, uh, I think for everybody is just amazing. But yes, absolutely. I've been, um, of course, I don't have as much time because I'm running a business. So, uh, <laughs> so I don't have as much time to, to, you know, pound the payment, if you will, but I'm always doing what I can in regards to giving back to community in, in ways in which I work through my restaurant, um, through donations, um, and continue to use my voice, um, through connections, through support of a lot of our community leaders that are out there pounding the pavement and making laws change and making things happen. I do everything that I can to support that. You're, I've mentioned your social media a couple of times. Is there a is there a point in your with your social media where you're like, you know what, I need to take a step step back, take a break? How do you handle being so public with so much of your of your life, or what what seems to be so much of your life? Um, you know, what's, what's interesting is I don't feel like I'm that public. <laughs> like I feel like I guess I've always been kind of this. It, it's natural for me to, I guess, you know, you have open people and you have really private people. It's always been natural for me, I guess, to share. Um, and there's things that I don't share. Believe me, there's a lot of things that I don't share. Uh, but when it comes to social media, you know, social media is such a, a job. Um, and, and I've actually, now I've been lucky enough to bring on a team to help me with social media, especially through my book campaign. Uh, that's, that's taking a lot of pressure off of me. But I, I think that I've taken breaks before, um, especially when I find like, for one, if, if social media is consuming me, two, if it's continuously making me not feel good, which is very easy to do when you're scrolling social media and to have bad feelings. Uh, and so when I feel like I'm getting in that space, I, you know, oftentimes I'll just delete it off my phone. So I'm not going to it as much. Um, but, you know, with the work I do, I can't completely be away from it because this is a lot of part of, you know, how I make a living. So um, that's that's a large part of it. But, yeah, breaks are necessary. And, you know, using my own personal, you know, I obviously have to always be there for business. But a lot of things I just I won't speak on sometimes because I don't have the energy. You know, right. I think it's important to save your energy. And sometimes I'm just like, you know what, I. I don't have the energy to for anybody right now. Right, you know? uh, that makes sense. You know? Yeah. So what's uh, what's next for you? Shit. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> get, get letting more and more people know about the book. You know, the book has been out. What, I'm almost two weeks now. Two weeks as of yesterday. Um, so, you know, that's my main focus is uh, getting the book out there, getting my story out there. Um, you know, with hopes that it helps free a lot of people. Um, and obviously, Virgil's is still going on, so that's always at the forefront. And actually hope to, maybe within the next year, have another location. Uh-oh. We're going to break a little news? Are you going to, you going to say uh, what that You know, I hope, well, I hope you will. I mean, I definitely think it's in the cards for us um, to open another one. I don't know what that's going to look like, if it's going to be another full-fledged, dining experience or maybe it'll just be a takeout only experience since that has proven to be so successful um you know i don't know 
Well, G, this has been great. Thank you for your time. My last question is where can people find you and follow you and find out more about the restaurant and the work that you're doing? Yep, they can find me at G Smalls, G E E S M A L L S. And from there, you can link to, to everything else from the foundation to, um, to, the, to the restaurant and bar and to the book information. All right. Thanks again, G. And thank you to everyone out there for listening. Subscribe to Podcast Q to keep up with new episodes and follow us at theqatl.com. See you soon. All right. Thank you for having me.